9. The Mythical Indian Preconceived ideas commonly interfere with our ability to see the world and people as they are. Our preconceptions have religious roots. They express our essential faith. The idea of the noble savage has deep roots. Its origin is in pagan antiquity. Many thinkers believe in an original golden age. Civilization has arisen since that time, but at its best it could not approximate either the original innocence or the natural fertility and virtue of the world around man. This view has a very real resemblance to the biblical account of the Garden of Eden. It is the divergence between the two which is critical. In scripture, it is man's sin which creates the world of evils in humanity and nature. It is man's will to be his own god and the source of all law and knowledge. Genesis 3.5 In classical thought, no such doctrine as man's desire to supplant God is to be found. Rather, the gods are jealous of man's powers, as with Prometheus. Horus believed in a golden land somewhere which would still manifest the golden age of fertility and happiness. When Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote about what came to be known as the noble savages, his thinking gained immediate acceptance because his premises were endemic in non-Christian circles. In fact, generations before Rousseau, such a belief had an extensive influence on Spanish imperial policy. Philip Wayne Powell in Mexico's Miguel Caldera, The Taming of America's First Frontier, 1548-1597, and Tree of Hate, 1971-1985, documented this influence very tellingly. The facts of Indian life, including cannibalism in some areas, could not shake the European idealists. Afra Ben had some experience in the, quote, New World, unquote, in the 17th century, but her belief in the noble savage remained firm in Orunoko, 1688. The mind of the noble savage was seen as a pure mind, one which, without the, quote, corruption, unquote, of Christianity, had attained to a, quote, true, unquote, knowledge of, quote, natural religion, unquote. Now, natural religion was a construction of the imagination of Enlightenment thinkers, it has never existed in any culture. Supposedly, the noble savage had a pure and natural worship of the, quote, great spirit, unquote, a vague substitution for the Christian god. American Indians supposedly represented this natural religion. Because the Indians, courteously and agreeably, did not contradict strange questions, but rather expressed a vague assent, scholars assumed that this was proof of the Enlightenment's doctrines. In time, Indians learned that acceptance of certain ideas commended them to those Europeans, so they began to adopt them. The belief in the noble savage living in a state of nature is not only unrealistic, but is also a static idea. It assumes an unchanging and ideal natural culture, in which the Indian has always existed. The goal of history was held to be a similarly static condition. Such ideas found focus in Marx's community ideal, the Great Society of John Dewey, and others. But Indian cultures had not been static. For one thing, the horse had dramatically altered Indian life. The first horses were probably those seized by Indians after the disasters of Cabeza de Vaca's circa 1490 to circa 1557 expedition. The horse created shockwaves from ocean to ocean. As some tribes gained horses before others, they were able to shatter the power of those tribes and drive them out of their usual nomadic migrations. Christian civilization has had 20 centuries of history and expansion. All those centuries have been times of change, sometimes great expansion and often new directions on the premises of the faith. In the 400 years of Indian life known to Europeans firsthand, the changes have been many also. The reactions of Europeans to that statement is usually, quote, Of course Christian whites had a shattering effect on the American Indians, unquote. True enough, but before the coming of the Europeans, 
Various Indian peoples had shattering effects on one another, sometimes less, sometimes greater than the impact of Europeans. Nothing Europeans have done has equaled, for example, the devastation wrought by the Mayas and later the Aztecs. We must not forget that Cortes could not have succeeded without the help of the non-Aztec peoples. They vastly preferred the Spanish to the Aztecs. This pattern was repeated all over the Americas. This is not all. The various Indian tribes had far less resistance to innovation than do modern Americans. They saw pragmatically what other peoples had and were eager to have it too. They were not chained to particular beliefs or practices. I had known that Indian children in earlier days had been taken from their parents and sent to boarding schools. All the same, I was shocked when one or two of the older men showed me the place near the agency office where their fathers had been shackled in irons until their sons, put into hiding, were surrendered. The men both appreciated my dismay and were a bit amused by it. I was offended by the violation of family life. They told me that they had gone to Carlisle in Pennsylvania and a long way from Nevada, intensely lonely. But in time, they found it an exciting new world of experiences and saw things they had never dreamed existed. One interesting urban site, spotted on a trip out of Carlisle, perhaps for an athletic game I do not recall, was an Italian with a monkey and a hurdy-gurdy, or hand organ. Not only was it for them an unusual sight, but the Italian, dark of complexion, seemed almost like an Indian of some other tribe. As a result, Italians were of a real, if minor, interest to these older men. In answer to the questions, I said I had not seen a man with a hurdy-gurdy since the 1920s. These men were curious about Italians in the United States and their progress. An Italian was no longer identified by a hurdy-gurdy and a monkey, so why then should an Indian be identified by what he was a generation or a hundred years ago? Some young Indians had already become enamored of playing the role of a white man's version of the Indian. It had an obvious appeal to white liberals and romantics and was a good means of getting attention and approval. An Indian delegation to Washington, D.C. and Congress often had an older and semi-senile man dressed as an Indian chief as part of the charade. These old Indians despised the game. They deeply resented any identification of Indians with artifacts out of the past. They relished it when I told them of pagan, German, and British tribes and their practices. Of particular delight was my account of how the British tribes, when Rome invaded the island, fought naked with their bodies painted. Maybe, one of the Indians said, we should refuse to hear any Indian services official unless he first strips and proves that his ass is painted blue. Those old Indians are gone. Both whites and Indians now play the silly game of identifying people with artifacts from the past. It is an absurdity neither seems ready to surrender.